Wednesday nights, I'm going to be taking you through the entire book of Acts. We're going to go inside Acts, and we want Acts to get inside of us. Amen? How many of you want the power of God to flow in your life? So we're going to take a new look at this book, a fresh approach to it, and we want to activate it, basically. We're going to go chapter by chapter activating what this historical document proves. If it could happen then, it can happen now. But I need you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to Acts chapter 1. What I want you to see is what God is doing and what he is setting up in this first chapter. God is establishing, first of all, before you can do anything, you have to have God's governmental authority over your life. Things have got to be structured. That's what peace means. It means shalom. You need to have an ordered life. You need to have things structured by God's authority and God's power because ultimately there is a system and order to the universe. How many of you know that? There are laws that govern everything in the spirit realm and in the natural realm. If you are out of sync with the governmental authorities of life, you will be stumbling through. But if the church would get back under the authority of Jesus Christ, I think we're going to make some headway. So that's what's happening here in the first chapter. I begin chapter 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it starts like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Who's writing this book? Does anybody know? Luke. Right. Brother Luke. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke. This is part 2. He's told you about the life of Jesus. Now he's going to tell you about the life of Jesus through the church and what God is doing. And he's writing to Theophilus and giving a historical account as a doctor would do. Verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Other translations say this, not just proofs, but it says, to them he presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs or infallible proofs. Let's talk about that. What were some of the infallible proofs he presented to the apostles that he had chosen what can you think of one Thomas what did Thomas end up saying my Lord and my God Theos he called Jesus that resurrected man God he is for a Jew to call that man God he understood he's the son of God in full authority on the earth What other proofs? You know, touch my sides, touch my prints. Is there another story of him walking and talking and eating? Road to Emmaus, right? As soon as he broke the bread, what happened? They got it, and he was gone. (laughs) Many proofs, many infallible proofs. Do you believe Jesus that much? Do you believe infallibly that he is the son of God that he is real that he does exist in heaven that he is your Lord that he is your Savior then why do we back away why do we back off of a world that is hostile to us we don't many of the church is leaving the doctrines 
leaving the power of the blood, leaving believing that this is an inspired word. Many in the church do not accept this as infallible proofs. And we've got to know it. We've got to learn it. We've got to meet Jesus. It's more than just a Bible study. You need to meet the living God, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the only thing that's going to grip our children to hold on to the faith while they have to contend with the world and school and go off to college is to hold on to an infallible proof that they had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Did you have an encounter with Jesus? This is what the book of Acts is about, a living encounter with Jesus. Amen? Now, he spoke this with those he had called and to the apostles he had chosen. How many of them were there? Twelve. But something happened to one of them. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. (laughs) He presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, infallible proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. He spent 40 days with them. Because he, he would rehearse, what did he speak about? What did it say that he spoke about? The kingdom of God. Now, we, we gloss over that way too quick. Now, I want to show you something in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him one question. Lord, will you at this time restore what? Israel. They're still confused. They're still paying attention to the wrong eschatological work of God. They're still concerned about them as a nation. Are we going to get free? Are you going to set up your kingdom now in Jerusalem? We're excited. What are you going to do now? He spent 40 days after resurrected, after three years of teaching them about the kingdom of God. Behold, the kingdom of God is near. Repent. He taught three years on the kingdom of God. They kept focusing on Israel. Forty days he's teaching them, infallible proofs about the kingdom of God. Okay, good. Are you going to set up your kingdom here in Israel? And they're not getting it still. So we've got to understand what the kingdom of God is. If we want this book to come alive in our lives, we can't keep thinking about different things. We've just shifted our concern to the kingdom of heaven. All we care about is going to heaven. There's a kingdom of God on the earth now. You understand what I'm saying? And we're doing just what Israel did, putting it off on what do I get from from Israel's kingdom? What do we get from heaven? What are we going to go to glory and hang on a cloud for? The kingdom of God is here now, active and present. And we're to be vitally concerned about that. Now, verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. There is a promise of the Father. It came from Abraham from God to Abraham. That promise to Abraham was from Abraham to his seed. Paul tells us that seed is Jesus. Every promise God has ever made throughout the entire Old Covenant is a promise that is embodied in the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is the promise that is manifest. And he said, you wait for it. Wait for the promise of the Father. And so the promise, you could, you, every promise God has ever made is yes in Christ Jesus. And when Christ came to dwell in us with his spirit of God, then the promise to Abraham, the promise to Adam and Eve, all of it is fulfilled in Christ who now dwells in you. Wait for the promise of the Father. He said, you heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you think they understood what that meant? Not a clue. (laughs) Not a clue. Is it all right that we don't understand everything from God? And will he still do it? Yes, he will. Thank God. That is. Amen. So we don't fully comprehend what God has for us and is yet to do, but that doesn't stop him from doing it. He had a plan, wait to be baptized. What does the word baptized mean, anybody? This is interactive, so Wednesday nights were totally interactive. Immersion. One element going into another element where the two become one. That's covenant language. Two become one. Okay? So we are literally being immersed into the nature of God. And that nature now dwells in us. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Amen. Now, let's go on. Because he's setting something up. He's establishing something. So he's teaching them about what? Kingdom of God. Now we go to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I like that. Did you know that... Democrats or Republicans or Russians or Chinese can't set or change God's fixed plans, right? We may, we may have certain leaders or lose certain leaders and great Christians rise and great Christians fall. None of that changes the fixed plans of the sovereign will of God. He's got a plan and he's bringing it together. He said, you can't change that, but you will receive power. They asked about the kingdom of Israel. He said, you don't worry about that. You're going to receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That is what he's starting to establish. And so let's take a quick look at that. Why would he put it that way? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. In each one of there is a boundary crossing. This is an expansive vision. He says, you're concerned about Israel. He said, don't worry about that. I'm making you witnesses by the power of God. You 12. And the 12 represents the body of Christ, all of us. So first, it's going to start in Jerusalem, the city of God. This is where it's going to begin And we'll see next week. It's going to start in the temple. It's going to move out into the city. It's going to uh, flood Jerusalem so much so that it's going to move out into Judea, the region and province that Jerusalem is in, Israel, Judea proper. Then it's going to cross a boundary line into Samaria. We're a little questionable about that. Can Samaritans get saved? Yeah, Jesus saved... uh, 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 Samaritans and brought revival to Samaria, didn't he? So they're going to start moving, and then from Samaria, it busts loose. And in fact, the entire book of Acts is based on this breakdown. This is the table of contents that Luke writes the book of Acts to. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. 
So chapters 1 through 8 deal with Jerusalem. Judea is chapter 8. Samaria is 9 and 10. Paul moves into his missionary journeys into 11 and 14. They go to the lands of the Aegean Sea in 1521 to where Paul ends up all the way into Rome. This covers the then known civilization of the world. And that's what Book of Acts tells us about what God is doing here. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Now, when he said these things and they were looking on him, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in heaven? I think this is funny. I think it's kind of comical. Wouldn't you be standing there, (laughs) my mouth agaping? I I mean, Jesus is standing here, all of a sudden he's rising out of the air, cloud of glory begins to form around him, and he goes up. I'm I'm paralyzed, I'm stunned. Two angels come along and go, hey, what what are you doing? Let's go. (laughs) Why are you looking at him like this? Why are you gazing? This is a great word for a lot of people, Uh, (laughs) right? Why are you standing looking to heaven? Oh, Christian church, if we would hear this. Why are you standing there gazing at heaven? And that's what we do. We get saved and we all look forward to going to heaven. That's like hiring a worker and the second week he's there, he wants to know what his retirement benefits are. Seriously? You've been here two weeks. Get busy. Just looking for retirement, looking for retirement, looking for retirement. I can't wait to go to glory. I can't wait to go to heaven. We got a job to do here. Stop gazing into heaven. But they do say this. They said, he was taken up from you into heaven. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so that helps us understand the return of Christ. So how is Jesus going to return? Little baby in a manger? No, no. No, we already did that. That's done. Okay, how's he going to come? Lion of Judah, he's going to come right same way, from the sky to the earth. Reverse action. Now he's going to come through the clouds of glory to the earth. Does anybody remember where he's headed? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. He will, his feet will, Zechariah 14.4, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. Of course, we will be returning with him and riding white horses as we come into Jerusalem. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives and they will split in two as he establishes his millennial kingdom. Amen? So he's coming with power and might and a resurrected group of believers as we return with him. Uh, That's when he will bring and establish his kingdom and Israel's glory once again, all right? So that's what we see here. Now, what's going on, what we don't realize is that God is in fact establishing his government, his his plan for the ages, so his kingdom positioning, because what happens is the Father is in heaven, isn't he? Jesus 
is ascending to heaven to take what office? The high priest. Because what did he say was going to happen to the temple? It's done. It's done. What happened when he said it's finished? What happened in the temple? The veil was ripped. The Holy of Holies has now been opened. So now that model of heaven is done. It's defunct. It has no value to the kingdom of God any longer. It's an empty vessel. So the high priest, the true high priest after the order of Melchizedek, has to take his office and his position. He teaches them. He's been teaching as Messiah, but now he is ascending into the heavenlies to stand before the throne of God as the high priest of the temple of heaven so that the will of heaven would be done where? On the earth. So he's establishing the authority that we are now living under. Father is on the throne, Jesus is the high priest interceding, and he releases, and we'll see this next week, what's he release? His spirit into us, his body. And he gave us a commission to, do, to be what? You will be my witnesses through the entire earth. And here it is, that is the establishment of the kingdom of God in all of its authority. Uh, but we got to fix something. Something isn't right yet. Okay, let's take a look. Verse 12. So they went back to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Let me, let me just help you understand something too. It, the Gospel of Mark, every time Jesus in the last week of his life would go in, he would judge the temple, uh, turn over the money changers, he would leave Jerusalem and go back to the Mount of Olives teach his disciples next day he would go in curse the fig tree go and preach and and call out the scribes and pharisees and deal with them and at night he'd leave jerusalem and go back to the mount of olives the mount of olives was where jesus went to instruct and teach he set apart that mountain from mount zion because mount zion had failed god and he kept coming in to bring judgment, coming in to bring judgment, and in fact even cursed that temple and fail. And in fact, on the Mount of East Olives, he said this, if you would say to that mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, it shall be done. He was speaking about a specific mountain. It wasn't just a a colloquialism, a, a, a nice word that means if you ever have a mountain in your way, you can cast it aside. He was specifically speaking on the Mount of Olives to Mount Zion, you apostles are going to cast that thing down because the kingdom of God is coming and there will be a new temple for the living God. Does anybody know what that temple is? It's us, the church. Somebody get excited about the book of Acts. We've been reading it like a history book instead of reading it like our own understanding of who we are. We've replaced that temple. We are the authority and government of God. So, okay, it's near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, probably John Mark's mother's house where they had the Last Supper. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. 
okay? In those days, it was about 120 in that upper room, crowded upper room, stuffy upper room, no air conditioning. So there they are up in that upper room. So Peter is praying. What does it say they're doing? They're praying. They're seeking God. You've got the 11. You've got the other women disciples who had been following. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, whom he appeared to. Jesus appeared to them, worked out their uh, issues. And verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brethren, the company and persons that was about 120, and he said this, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. All right? Who was Judas? The one who guided those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. Gospel of John says he was the the treasurer of the twelve. John says later we found out he'd skim off the top. Could you imagine being in the presence of Jesus for three years with Jesus, casting out demons, healing the sick, walking side by side with the master, and still not convinced as to who he was or understanding who he was and trying to force his hand? Verse 18, now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. Another account says that he hung himself. And so how do you harmonize this account from Luke and another account to where he hung himself? Well, some believe that it's just your perspective of what the process of his death was is they believe that he hung himself from a tree, and after he hung himself, hanging there, that tree collapsed, and his body fell to the ground and busted out over the land that he bought, which then became accursed. The field is now called, in their own language, Akadama, that is, field of blood. And here's the prophecy in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And also Psalm 109 verse 8. Let us, let another take his office. Could I encourage you to do something? Could you go home and read Psalm 109? Read Psalm 109 if you want to understand where Judas was and where he is now. Some people are like, oh, poor Judas, you know, God called him to be a a betrayer. He had no choice. Oh, he had a choice. In fact, you can read the choice that Jesus said, you know, at at the Last Supper, what you choose to do. He's choosing to do it. Anyways, Psalm 109 tells you what happened to, to Judas, and he is a man who's totally accursed. And so why did the Holy Spirit prompt Peter through scriptures, prophetically speaking, that we need to have someone else fill his, get this word, office. Why did they need another one? So there would be 12. 12 is the number of government in Hebrew understanding. The government of God was not ready for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to fill them until the government was established in the earth. Okay? 
And this is the process we see in Acts chapter 1. First, Jesus is instructing them about the kingdom of God, what their task in the kingdom of God would be, where they need to go for their task in the kingdom of God. He ascends to his position, but he can't send the Spirit yet to activate this thing till we get the body on earth in order, in line with the government he's established. We've got a traitor here. We need to find one replacement for the 12, because 12 is the number of government. And what is interesting is in the upper room, you have the 12 apostles, uh, the 11 right now, but eventually you'll have 12, and multiplied by 10, you have 120. And 10 is that multiplication number of what is to become of the body of Christ in the kingdom of God. It is to multiply, it is to grow based on the foundation of the 12. They have a very specific function. The 12 apostles of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation calls them, is different than the New Testament office of apostle. There's no other apostles like the 12 apostles of the Lamb. How do I know this? Keep reading. So one of them, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Someone has to replace Judas. Who's going to replace them? We have to find somebody that were followers of Jesus. See, it wasn't just 12 that followed him. There were many that followed Jesus, but he chose 12 as his governmental authority to be his sent ones, apostles. But it was very specific. They had to be true witnesses with infallible proof of who he was because the whole kingdom, as Jesus told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. What rock? The confession of the 12. The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God. That confession that is proofed and held by the apostles' doctrine. So the 12 are those in authority. So we have to replace one. So we got to get a replacement. Who qualifies? So how many did they have that they could pick from that qualified? Now, first of all, what are the qualifications? From the beginning? From when he was baptized? Why? What, What happened when he was baptized? What needed to be seen and witnessed? Father spoke, Holy Spirit descended, right? He had a lot going on at the baptism. He said he must do this to fulfill all righteousness. At that point, when Jesus entered into the waters of baptism, he's going into the waters to John the Baptist, who just happens to be a Levitical priest. He was a Levite. Some believe that he was possibly supposed to be the high priest, but was passed over because of the political situation in Jerusalem of how they picked priests. So, because we see Zacharias was, was in position, his father, Zechariah. Anyways, John the Baptist, a Levitical priest, is now going to anoint Jesus, and it is at that point that the priesthood shifts from Levite to Melchizedek. At that baptism, Jesus takes over the priesthood and rises up, and the Spirit of God anoints him. Any rabbi that was to speak with authority had to be anointed by two. 
for him to have the Shemekah power, the authority to speak of the Word of God. As he rose out of the water, what witnesses spoke of his authority? The Father and the Spirit. And he rose up out of that. We needed someone to see that and hear that and know that. Then they had to travel with him for how many years? Three. Three years. Had to be there the whole time. Then they had to be there all the way till the end, too. They had to hear him walk with him for 40 days, and they had to see him rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. So we've got two people that qualified, They've, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, and also Justice, he was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them. This is the last time you will ever see a reference in Scripture concerning casting lots. Because casting lots comes from the high priest of the Old Testament. I preached on this just a couple months ago. I would encourage you to look it up if you didn't. I went into what the Urim and Thummim were. Uh, it was during the last series I did on a couple Sundays ago. And basically, they're the stones, the lots, the concept uh, of casting lots was to basically cast them, throw them, and how they landed would tell you a yes or a no. Now, that was to be held by the priest, the high priest, and when you needed to discern things from God, Yahweh, soothsayers and other people of witchcraft they had their own lots and this and that but the legitimate one between God and 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 Israel was held in the breastplate of the high priest and at this point you've got the church now and they're going to act upon casting lots for who is going to take the place of Judas it turns out to be Matthias why would this be the last time lots are used We don't need no stones. We don't need to throw lots. We got the real deal. And the high priest is now in heaven. And he has sent the Urim and Thummim, the light and truth, that's what Urim and Thummim means, into our being. And that's why in this first chapter of Acts, that's the last time you see lots, because we've got them in us. And he will guide us into all truth and direct our paths and so God is establishing his governmental authority the father is in place the son as high priest takes his position as the true temple of God where the blood has been spilt in heaven the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out but before he could he needed to get the government of God in the earth in place Matthias is now chosen as one of the twelve How do we know that? In chapter 6, verse 2, it says that when there was a dispute among the Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows or Jerusalem widows, they called the twelve to distinguish the problem. It didn't say they called the apostles. It says they called the twelve. So they were the legitimate 
12 apostles. Some people argue and say, oh, they messed up. They never should have done that. Paul it was supposed to be that foundational. Pro- no, Paul is a New Testament apostle in the office of apostle, but he's not an apostle of the Lamb that these 12 were. Although Paul did spend three years with Jesus at his feet and did see the resurrected Lord, he validated that. But we've got the 12 established by the first chapter of Acts. It is so fundamental in our discussion and argument of the validation of Scripture. If you will see, we'll get into this next week, but the very first thing that is established among the church is the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' teaching. The entire kingdom hinges on the 12 witnesses of Jesus. They saw him, they heard him, and they gave the revelation of him. They have the authority for the kingdom. Now, what is Luke trying to show us? That now the government of God is in place. And what is now going to be released? The The Holy Spirit to empower it. Why do we focus on this? Because we need to be in place. The government of God needs to be in order. There needs to be an established order, and that trickles down right to your own life. And I ask you tonight, brothers and sisters, is the government of God in order in your life? If you want the flow of the Holy Spirit to be released from heaven and active, what is out of order in our hearts? Are we submissive to the will of God? Are we obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus is telling us to do? Remember, they're to go into the world and teach everyone to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Look at our government in America. Runs efficiently, runs smoothly. There is no error. There is nothing wrong with it. Justice is swift. Justice is true. And righteousness flows from heaven through our governmental system. I don't think I'm talking about this nation, am I? But could we compare the church as dysfunctional as our own government? Our government was established on the three branches, which is biblical, but it's not functioning well, is it? God is aligning His people, His church, back in the order it is to be. The apostles' doctrine is first. If you won't believe the inerrancy of God, if you will not trust the Scriptures to be true, run from that church, leave that teaching behind, and get away from it. It's out of order. Amen? Get the government of God back in order. Let's follow the apostles' doctrine. Let's look to our high priest and intercessor. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. If your doctrine is wrong about Him, you're wrong about the whole government of God. If church is about the people and us, we're wrong about the government of God. It's about Him. We're His body. And so this is what Acts chapter 1 is completely about, getting everything in line because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is now going to generate the power necessary to win this world. So let's look at our own lives. 
Let's pray. Let's ask God. Holy Spirit, show us tonight what's out of order. Listen, this doesn't have to be sin. There's, and it doesn't have to be something woefully wrong. It could be that we're just fearful. It's a heart condition. We could have a hardened heart where we're not, we're not believing and trusting. We're, we're fearful. We're, we're anxious. Something, anything can be out of order here. So this, maybe if you need a rebuke, I'll rebuke you. But if you don't need a rebuke, but you need an adjustment, let's adjust it. Let's put, Peter said this, make Jesus king of your heart. Establish his authority. Let us pray.